My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. that's really frustrating for me as someone with a background in public health is that there were a number of recommendations that the government refused to implement in schools. We had more than a year and a half between when the pandemic started and when we had that massive Omicron spike that led to schools closing again for a bit. They could have made investments. Time and time again, there were things that the government could have done to make schools safer. That's the voice of Heather Hanwell. She, Kate Lang, and Hannah are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. We all know the broad outlines. In early 2020, people started getting sick from a novel coronavirus, and since that time, COVID-19 has killed in excess of 6 million people around the world. As well, tens of millions more are living with often serious long-term symptoms, leading many experts to describe the pandemic as a mass disabling event. Initially, many governments took decisive action to save lives and keep health systems from collapsing. As we learned more about how the virus works, and as new tools like vaccines became available, we transitioned to ways of protecting each other that were effective but less disruptive. And yet today, with more COVID deaths in Canada so far in 2022 than in all of either 2020 or 2021, and with our health system in crisis, governments have largely retreated from the kinds of measures that we know would keep us safe while still allowing us to largely go about our lives. Today's episode focuses on the public education system in Ontario. The pandemic response in that context has largely followed the broader trajectory. Lots of shutdowns early on, then a shift to dependence on overlapping measures like distancing, masking, and vaccines, followed by the current refusal by the government to do much of anything to keep students and staff safe, or to even acknowledge the existence of a problem. Heather Hanwell has a PhD in nutritional sciences from University of Toronto, as well as master's degrees in both nutritional sciences and public health. Kate Lang holds two Bachelor of Science degrees, one in psychology and one in physiology, and she lives with an autoimmune disease. And Hannah, who is participating under a pseudonym, is a small business owner. All three are the parents of children in the public education system in Ontario. They're speaking today as members of Ontario School Safety, a group of Ontario residents, most of them parents, committed to ensuring that Ontario schools are safe enough for students, teachers, and other education workers. The group got its start on Twitter. A lawyer posted a thread outlining why he thought that parents in Ontario would have a strong legal case against the provincial government for its unreasonable and unsafe choices in responding to COVID in Ontario schools, and a number of parents responded. Most had been doing what they could as individuals to put pressure on their local school boards about COVID safety and were frustrated by how little headway they had been able to make. The lawyer facilitated an initial online meeting, and they decided to form a group. A planned lawsuit against the Ontario government is the centerpiece of the group's strategy, though they are also doing various kinds of media work and public education. They set up a GoFundMe page, a website, and social media, 
As of this recording, they've raised about $35,000 out of the $75,000 that they need to launch the lawsuit. And they're also looking for more people who might want to get involved in the group or become plaintiffs in the suit. The group is very clear that they are not asking for more school shutdowns. What they want is the government to do the things that would be necessary to make it safe to keep schools open. This could involve a lot of different elements, but it prominently features reorienting the province's response to center what the science actually says about COVID and its transmission in schools, honest communication about that with the public, and more testing. They want evidence-based decision-making about measures like mandatory masking, investment in better indoor air quality, and changes in school operations like cohorting and altered schedules. And they want all of this implemented in a way that is equitable, with, for example, free provision of N95 and similar masks to ensure that expense is not a barrier to safety. And today's interview participants say they have a lot of sympathy for people who don't understand the extent to which COVID remains a threat in schools and in general. They don't blame Ontarians. They blame such misunderstanding on the government and its abysmal communication about the pandemic. I speak with Heather, Kate, and Hannah about the work of Ontario School Safety. My name is Heather Hanwell. I have a PhD in nutritional sciences from medicine at U of T and a master's of public health in epidemiology and a master's of science in human biology and nutritional sciences. So I come to the work with Ontario School Safety, not only with my experiences as a parent in Ontario through the pandemic, but also using my credentials and my experiences there as well. With Ontario School Safety, we are a group of mostly parents, but not entirely in Ontario, who are interested in ensuring that schools are safe enough for all staff and students to be attending. To achieve that goal, our main focus is raising funds to launch a legal challenge against the government for not upholding the rights of staff and students to a safe working and learning environment. My name is Kate Lang, and I am a parent of two young children. I am somebody who has an autoimmune disease, so I'm very interested in not catching COVID multiple times. And I also have two Bachelor of Science degrees, one in human physiology and the other in human psychology. So I'm a big proponent of science. With the way that current public health policy is, I don't feel like that's driven by science. And that's what causes me to get involved, especially when it involves the health and safety of my family, but also just vulnerable Ontarians. There are lots of people who have risks that make them vulnerable to COVID and post-COVID effects, and they deserve access to public education, in-person education. We definitely believe in that. And so I just want to make sure that, you know, everybody gets the same chance and that it's safe for everybody. My name is Hannah. I'm actually using a pseudonym today, which is partly why I'm part of this fight, because I can't believe that we're in a position in our society where I feel like either my family and my children, our small business might somehow be at risk by angry people who think that our desire to make in-person schooling stable and safe for all children is even remotely controversial. But here we are. I don't have immunocompromised vulnerable people per se in my household, although I do have one child and myself who have had a previous COVID infection. So we actually are now slightly more susceptible to other issues if we get reinfected. But from the beginning of the pandemic, I have two elderly parents in a retirement home 
And just seeing COVID run rampant constantly, the back and forth, the yo-yo effects of the leadership we've had and the communication failure we've had with COVID has caused me to say, okay, enough, we need to stop it and protect our children. And that's why I'm here. So we probably shouldn't need to go over this context at this stage of the pandemic, but given the amount of misinformation out there, we probably do. So talk about COVID itself, its impacts on people's health, and the significance of indoor collective settings in terms of its spread. COVID being a novel virus, we've been learning about it as we go along. In the beginning, we thought of it as an upper respiratory virus, and then it was causing huge pneumonia, and it was no longer upper respiratory. It was just, you know, respiratory. And then we saw the clotting cascades and the cytokine storms, and we realized that it's also an endovascular disease. And now we're finding that COVID is attacking almost every organ system, and it's also causing a great deal of immune dysregulation. And none of that even touches long COVID, which depending on which study you're looking at, is affecting between 10 and 30% of people who get COVID every time you get COVID, you're rolling the dice as to whether or not you are going to end up with a long-term illness. And so med Twitter, which is what I call all the medical professionals who are doing the public service of trying to educate us as a society and provide accurate real-time information, they are very clear about causing COVID a mass disabling event. And so we need to keep everybody safe. And because schools are such a massive transmission vector, especially because kids can be asymptomatically sick with COVID, kids are part of the community. They have parents, they have grandparents, they have friends, they go everywhere. And we also know that kids can be kind of gross. Like they will sneeze in your open mouth and not even bat an eyelash. So they are germ spreading little angels and we love them, but it's a lot when you consider how many kids they have access to in a day, especially taking their masks off and eating in a school. Let's keep clear too that SARS-CoV-2 is a level three biohazard pathogen. And the fact that we are fine with this running anywhere in our communities is astounding to me, let alone infecting our children and running rampant in schools. I don't know how this is something that any parent, any citizen is fine with. And to that end, I just want to add that like, we have more notification protocols in place for kids getting head lice than we do a disease that causes enormous endovascular compromise, cardiovascular events, neurocognitive deficits, long COVID, like it's just massive the number of things that we're finding COVID does. And we as a society have just said, let it rip. And and we're just letting it run through schools. Give an overview of what the Ontario government has done over the last two and a half years with respect to COVID-19 and schools. In the beginning, the Ontario government actually did a fairly good job of just listening to the scientists, of deferring to the science table and the people who could really make these decisions and keep everybody safe. But I have to say that knowing how this government works, that was a popular stance to take. People were afraid of COVID. People were afraid of what it could do to them and their loved ones. And then it all kind of came to a head around the Christmas time of, I want to say 2021, when cases really started to go through the roof and we were having COVID testing capacity issues. And then all of a sudden we said, okay, well, you can only get a test if you are one of these people. 
And that for me was the beginning of the end because we no longer had accurate case count numbers because so many people were getting sick and not getting tested. If you tested positive on a rapid antigen test, there was no requirement to report that anywhere. And so our numbers went to crap, quite frankly. And that really impaired parents' ability to make informed decisions about, you know, whether or not their kids should or could be in school and what their own risk was. And at the same time, the government was trying to say, we need to put it on you and and you need to make a decision about what your risks are. One of the things that's really frustrating for me as someone with a background in public health is that there were a number of recommendations evidence-based recommendations that the government refused to implement in schools. We had more than a year and a half between when the pandemic started and when we had that massive Omicron spike that led to schools closing again for a bit. They could have made investments. Time and time again, with schools closing, there were things that the government could have done to make schools safer, particularly in the area of airborne transmission. And that's something that has frustrated a lot of us is that the science was clear that there was absolutely an airborne component. How much of a component it was, was still up for debate, but it was definitely a component. And in the schools, the government really could have done a lot more sooner to make schools safer. If they really wanted to have undisrupted learning and keep kids in school, and let's face it, our society, we have organized ourselves around children being in class Monday to Friday during school hours. We've seen how much it affects all sectors of our society and our economy when they're not. And so to me, to us, it doesn't make sense that the investments haven't been made to make schools safer from an airborne virus. I think there's been just massive communication failure from our provincial government through to the public health units who you know, ultimately report to them. Initially, as Kate said, everybody seemed to be on board with doing what needed to be done. But as time goes on, and as many of these protections probably required funding, we started to see a change in the kinds of communications that were or were not coming out for the general public. One, as Heather mentioned, is the inability for people confidently to say the A word, that COVID is airborne. That could have changed so many things so much sooner. Another serious communication fail was calling Omicron mild. Unless you're a parent, a child guardian, continuously following the signs of day that you can scrap together yourselves online or through other scientific means, you're just going to go with that. Like we as a group fully understand why the majority of people don't think COVID's a big deal. And I can understand why they're going, why are you guys so crazy? Why do you want masks all the time? Or why do you want them to, you know, have to pay money to improve ventilation in school? So I get why people would think that. And it's because they have not been given all of the information, science-based, data-driven decision-making has not been taking place. They've removed virtually all protections and left it up to the individuals. And we see how that's going for us right now with the pediatric crisis. How did Ontario school safety first come together? I would like to thank Twitter for connecting a number of us initially. Twitter has been the place where a lot of us have actually been able to follow and find other scientists and people from various disciplines sharing their research, ensuring that the increasingly limited amount of data that are out there from our governments and school boards and so forth, that those were being shared and the implications discussed and so forth. And so a lot of us on our own, 
we're banging our heads against the wall trying to make changes in our own schools or school boards, signing petitions, a lot of these things. And there was a thread with a lawyer who said, you know what, parents in Ontario, you guys have a strong case here against this government about unsafe schools. And he facilitated a conversation among a number of us who reached out. And that's where the idea for this group came from. From there, we got working on Slack and got a website up, got the GoFundMe up to say that we need to raise money for a legal challenge against this government because they are not following the science. They are not collecting even the data that you would need to drive some of these public health decisions. Why a lawsuit as opposed to other tactics? I think there were a lot of us who had tried to affect change in our individual boards and in our individual schools, and we're running into a lot of red tape. And there was a lot of circular arguments around, you know, well, it's this person's call, and then you talk to them, and it's this person's call, and you kind of get the runaround. And that's what led us all to say, okay, who's at the head of this particular beast? Who is driving these policy decisions? Who is making this call? Because it's clearly not the public health folks. Like public health knows that this is an airborne virus. They know that masking is one of the layers we need to limit the transmission of spread. So if they're saying that masking is a really great idea and the masking protections are going away, you kind of have to look at who's making that decision. And it became very clear very quickly that it was the Ontario government who was making that call. And so in order to affect change for all Ontarians, this is an equity issue and that all kids and all teachers and all administrators deserve a safe environment. So, you know, you have to go for the head of the snake, for lack of a better term, where you have to go to the top. And what else is the group doing beyond the lawsuit itself? Beyond raising the funds for the legal case and setting that up itself, we've got the Twitter handle, the website, as well as some Facebook presence. We're also doing advocacy and sharing public health information that our public health officials aren't. Like Hannah said earlier, we really empathize with the general public who are not following all of the data and science, for example, through Twitter or whatever else. We empathize with people who don't think that COVID is still a concern and who may not think that airborne transmission is much of a concern because of the lack of information that's been out there. And we think that education is a big part of that. We're not out here necessarily to change people's minds if they've already dug into strong positions against COVID protections, but rather I like to think about friends of mine in my small Northern community who are busy with their lives. They're struggling to put food on the table because of rising grocery prices. They're waiting for a day in the ER when their kids are struggling to breathe. They're not able to access medications, et cetera. And they're confused and they're probably feeling a little bit, if anything, annoyed or angry at the government, I would think, right now. Because why are we talking about masks again? We thought we were out of this. Why are we having this crisis in hospitals and in particularly in the children's hospitals? So part of our work right now, in addition to the legal case, is to help get that information out there. And we're hoping to expand our reach into parts of social media that, you know, your average Joe parent might be hanging out. So it might not be Twitter. Another part of our strategy is we're looking for stories 
from people who've been affected by COVID, who've been affected by the lack of protections in schools. These sorts of folks can, if they're interested, let us know if they might want to be plaintiffs in our case. We've already had a lot of families reach out to us. We have people within the group. We want to know if you're having trouble, if you're having issues with COVID in schools or whatnot, and you think you might want to be a plaintiff, we're letting people know. We want to hear from them. We want to hear their stories and we want to talk to them if this is something that they might want to consider being part of. When we talk about the education piece, it's so crucial because there are dots that need to be connected here that the government isn't really interested in connecting for people. When the government says that they leave everything up to personal choice, if you don't provide them with the information to make a good choice, then you don't have informed decision making. You don't have informed consent. So parents are making these decisions without all of the information and they deserve that information. So part of our mission is to give parents the information they need to know that this is happening, but there's also ways to prevent it. We're not a doom and gloom place here. We're saying, yes, this is out there and we know it's out there. And yes, we need to learn to live with COVID. But living with COVID doesn't mean just, you know, accepting the fact that you're going to get infected with it multiple times. It means, okay, got to wear a mask in congregate settings, got to social distance, got to get vaccinated, got to do all of these layers of protections. And the government has its role to play in terms of making sure that air quality is high, making sure that there are policies in place so that kids can socially distance while eating lunch at school. Like there's so many things that the government could be doing to make it easier for us to live with COVID while remaining safe. And dive a little deeper into what you think the Ontario government should be doing with respect to COVID in schools that it currently isn't. Firstly, we'd like them to acknowledge the basics about this biohazard pathogen. One is that it's airborne. So any amount of hand sanitizer is hardly going to get us out of the mess that we're in. It's not going to protect your child from acquiring this virus. Acknowledge that although the acute infections may seem mild, that there are children who are asymptomatic. So you may never know that your child has had SARS-CoV-2. To admit that transmission in schools is real and it's ample. For a long time, we thought, oh, kids don't get COVID. Then kids don't transmit it in schools, although it's transmitted in the communities, and that it's mild, right? And we know now it is shown in multiple reports that kids were transmitting COVID in schools. So it's no longer a question that schools are areas of high transmission. It's also no longer a question that kids can be infected with it and that it is doing damage to their bodies, potentially short term and potentially long term. And the fact that the adults in the room so far aren't choosing to give that information out, again, means that people can't properly self-assess. So we are asking the government to be transparent with the information. Schools don't feel like they can take the steps to mandate masks for their kids because they know it's going to be rejected by the Minister of Health, Sylvia Jones. It stops with her. We know that public health units, even on their websites, will acknowledge what's really going on, but they can't say too much more because they also report to the government. We know that our chief medical officer of health reports to the government. He is considered a political figure, not a medical figure when he's in this role. And so we need them to be transparent, step up, take the actions and stop the damage to our children, to all children so they can attend school in person. And what that means is that they need to reinstitute any and all public health measures that we know through, you know, the the worst of COVID back at the Omicron wave. We knew that it was going to take a layered approach. Vaccines were never going to be a silver bullet. 
we know that this is going to be a layered approach. So looking at all of those layers and tackling them, looking at masking protection, looking at air quality levels in buildings. I can't remember which European country, but there is a European country who's now made it law that you have to be transparent about CO2 levels in public buildings. That's an important measure looking into things like, you know, UV cleansing of the air inside buildings. I think we all understand that retrofitting HVAC systems is going to be a huge investment. So get creative. We have lots of science and lots of different ways that we could be instituting these sort of air purification methods. Our provincial government received a lot of federal dollars to tackle COVID in our province. And I want to know where that's going because there's a bunch of it that's missing. Quite frankly, it hasn't been accounted for and they should have been spending. They had a long time here to put in place some of these measures that we're talking about here. So we need the government to step up and do their job and protect us all by putting in place these evidence-based protection measures that are going to keep us all safe. And they need to put in place an independent science table that is not politically motivated, that is only there for the science. Ontario school safety in the way that we work, even as a group, and in the mission that we have, we are seeking to prioritize those who are most vulnerable. In the measures that we're asking for, we want to make sure that equity and intersectionality are topics that are driving what we're wanting. So how that might look, for instance, is two of the things that our group supports are one, we want the government or the Ministry of Education to provide evidence-based masks for staff and students. So previously they were providing N95s, they need to continue doing that. And they also need to provide respirator style masks or respirator masks. And that's because masks are expensive. And we already know that people are struggling to feed their families, struggling with rising rents, housing crisis, so as a group, we believe that any types of measures that we're advocating for must consider the most vulnerable. What does the path ahead look like in terms of the lawsuit and your other activities? The big thing going forward is we are looking to continue raising funds to make sure that we can fund this legal challenge and that we can take it through to the very end. When it comes to what's next, we're still looking through all of the stories that we are receiving from parents, from teachers, from administrative professionals in the education system. And we are collecting plaintiff stories and looking for those cases that are going to be the most poignant in terms of being an effective front case for the legal challenge. So we are encouraging people to donate. We are encouraging people to volunteer. We definitely need plaintiffs and we definitely need to fundraise. And once we have the majority of the funds raised, I think we'll definitely be much, much closer to filing the lawsuit. You have been listening to my interview with Heather Hanwell, Kate Lang, and Hannah of Ontario School Safety. To learn more about the group or to find out how to contribute towards the lawsuit that they intend to launch, go to ontarioschoolsafety.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.